All right, Ecclesiastes, or not Ecclesiastes, boy, I'm going backwards. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, is where we pick up this evening in our study in the Song of Solomon. Last time we went down as far as chapter 5, verse 1, and kind of stopped there because there is a natural break uh, in the poetic song that is given to us here. Remember, the Song of Solomon celebrates really and describes by the Holy Spirit's record here the expression of romantic love between a man and a woman. And we have been looking at Solomon, I believe, with his first love, his first true love, King Solomon as a young man, as he finds this Shulamite gal, this country girl from Lebanon. You have really the king from the palace falling in love with a country gal from Lebanon, recognizing one another, falling in love with one another. We saw their courtship so far. And then after a time of courtship, we saw ultimately them in chapter three come to the place of their wedding. And then even their wedding night celebration, the honeymoon, if you would, the consummation of their physical and sexual love towards one another, and particularly, uh, really just the passion that was described there in great detail in chapter 4, particularly just the Bible's description of all of the enjoyment and the, the passion and fulfillment that they were enjoying together as a new husband and a wife in very uh, direct language, certainly poetic language, but very obvious in the reading of it. You can't dismiss uh, God's intention that they were enjoying themselves and in a sense feasting upon and drinking deeply of passionate and erotic love together as a new husband and wife. In fact, the last part of verse one seems to potentially be the voice of the Lord perhaps interjecting into this experience of them on their honeymoon and enjoying sexual love together, saying, eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. It's almost as if God is endorsing there, saying, feast upon this romantic and intimate love that you share together as a gift as a husband and wife. Now, as we come to chapter 5, verse 2, this seems to be the next break, if you would, the next natural transition, having looked at their courtship, having looked at the consummation, the physical uh, consummation of their marriage as a husband and a wife. It seems now as we come to chapter 5, verse 2, and through the remainder of the chapter, we now enter into a season where, as we might say in our language, the honeymoon is over. They come back, and now they're beginning to experience uh, mature romantic love, marital love has progressed. They've gone past the time of the honeymoon. And now we begin to see some of the natural realities as well as some of the natural struggles that every marriage to some degree experiences. Uh, and the maturing of love and the maturing even of their romantic love as a husband and wife. And you'll take notice of this as we go into this. Now, chapter five, verse two tells us that the Shulamite speaking here says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. Now, very likely, again, that could possibly be poetic language of her indicating that she's describing a dream that she's having here. Uh, certainly, she could be laying there thinking about this awake, but the language does seem to indicate, as we saw earlier, that she's describing a dream that she had, even as we saw her describe a dream earlier in the Song of Solomon, and potentially a dream that she had, kind of a bad dream, about a 
painful or disappointing experience that happened between her and her husband, which maybe was weighing on her mind. And you know how that kind of happens sometimes. If you've got things on your mind or things you're concerned about or thinking through, sometimes that kind of makes it into the dream state. And so whether she's laying there awake pondering this experience that happened in the past or whether it is something she's in a dream state about over something that she was concerned about, a grief that she had within her heart, uh, she begins to describe now what took place. She says in verse 2, it is the voice of my beloved. He knocks saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is covered with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. So what this seems to be describing here is Solomon now, potentially he's either had a long day at work that's gone into the evening hour, if you would. Again, remember, he's the king. He's a new king at this time, so he's got the affairs of state. He's got a lot of responsibility. He's off. He's had a long day at work, and he's coming home at a, a later hour now. We'll see. She's already in bed. She's already kind of turned in for the night. He's come in so late. Or could be even that he's returning, if you would, per se, from a business trip, that he's been away handling some affairs of state. He comes home, and now he arrives back to the household. He's knocking on the door. She's kind of already settled in for the evening, and he's knocking on the door. And keep in mind, in that day, it'll kind of help you kind of reconcile this a little bit, is typically uh, in the ancient culture, a lot of times the queen, and she's the queen of King Solomon now, would get their own kind of little uh chamber, if you would, their own bedroom area. So in some way, she's in kind of locked off in the, the palace area. Again, this would keep the queen safe from any of the other men in the palace, any of the other workers. And so that kind of gives you an idea why he comes back. And he's kind of, kind of knocking on the door here. He wants her to open up. And he says, open for me, my sister, my love, my perfect one, for my head's covered with the dew and my locks with the drops of the night. Again, we could tell it's a late evening hour. But again, very clearly what Solomon is doing here is he's making a, a sexual advance towards his wife. Again, it's either been a long day of work or he's coming back from the business trip. He's not seen his wife in a period of time and he is excited to return home and there is passion and there is erotic arousal. He wants to be with his wife. He's knocking upon the door hoping to experience a receptivity towards his romantic or sexual advancement, to which we then read in verse 3 her response to him knocking on the door and making an advance towards her romantically. She says, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've already washed my feet. How can I defile them? So, she basically conveys to him, listen, her language there in essence is saying, look, I've already taken my bath. I've already taken my bath. I've washed my feet. I don't want to walk across the floor and get my feet dirty, she says. I've already taken off my robe. I'm just here in my PJs. How, you want me to get out of bed now, put my robe back on again, walk over to the door, unlock the door for you. And so in essence, what she's saying is really, I'm not in the mood. I'm too tired, not this evening. Now, what she's doing, if you think about it, is she rather, if you think about it, is making somewhat of a shallow excuse 
that whether he's gone for a long day's work or particularly if he's gone on a business trip and now he's making an advancement towards his wife in this matter, she's basically kind of, kind of refuting his advance and she's denying and she's refusing his advancement towards her by kind of making an excuse for why she does not want to go and open to him and receive him in and engage in physical intimacy with him. Now, I know this has probably never happened in a marriage relationship, but just try and imagine if you could. And so here she's rejecting his advancements. Now, again, let me just say, you know, this is something that as a married couple, as we move beyond the honeymoon and marital, you know, uh, in a sense, seasoned marital life begins to happen and mature marriage begins to transpire, this is something that we need to be very sensitive to as spouses. As he is making a sexual advance towards his wife and she is giving him what is rather somewhat of a shallow excuse that she just doesn't want to get out of bed or because she's tired, uh, this can be something that becomes very hurtful and damaging in relationships. Again, the Bible particularly tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 regarding the instruction to both husbands and to wives that we are not to deprive one another in regards to romantic affection. And again, it's not talking about affection in the context of walking down the boardwalk holding hands. The context in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 is clearly sexual expression. And he says, your body is no longer your own. Now, that doesn't mean your body belongs to me. I can use your body whenever I want to. What it means is in a servant-hearted spirit that when you enter into marriage, you choose to say, I no longer have rights over my own body, and I now want to give my body to you as my spouse as an act of love, to minister to you, to meet your desires, to be able to give pleasure to you, and, and to be able to care for you in this manner as I would care for you in any other manner in marital love. And so the Bible cautions, except by mutual consent, that as husbands and wives, we're not to be depriving one another in this area of sexual desire, that even at times, if the mood is not there, there should be the heart of ministry and servanthood, whereas an act of graciously serving our spouse, we don't reject their advances. Again, because this can become a very problematic thing in marriage relationships, especially if it becomes an ongoing and a chronic thing. So she refuses his advancement at this time. Now, let me just say in connection to this before I go on, as we talked about kind of going through this, in a secondary sense, beyond looking at the celebration and description of romantic love between a man and a woman, in a secondary sense, the Song of Solomon does give to us on occasion, if we look, beautiful analogies of the love relationship that God has towards people, or Jesus as the groom between us as his bride, as the church. And as I look at verse 2 and 3, is it not a description of at times what also happens spiritually between us and our groom Jesus? Is sometimes Jesus comes and verse 2, he's knocking right on the door of our heart. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 tells us that, that he comes and he knocks on the door of our heart. And it says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and have fellowship with him. And again, that's to Christians. So sometimes Jesus comes and, and he knocks upon the door of our heart and he's seeking intimate fellowship with us. 
Even as this husband was seeking romantic expression with his wife, Jesus seeks fellowship with us. And just like this wife here refuses her husband's romantic advancement towards her and in a sense deprives him and does not allow him to have access and intimacy with her on that evening, do we not sometimes find ourselves guilty of refusing the Lord's advances? is he knocks on the door of our heart and he says, I want to spend time with you. And sometimes we, for rather shallow excuses, deny the Lord our attention or we don't give him time or we don't spend time with him. And sometimes we can be guilty, if you would, of making shallow excuses for spiritual indifference and refusing the Lord's loving advances towards us, even as this wife was, in a sense, wrongly doing such this night towards her husband. Now, When she does this, it seems rather quickly her conscience convicts her, and you can tell in the preceding verses, she's using poetic language, that she now starts to feel guilty and struggle because she realizes she has now hurt her husband and, in a sense, has pushed him off or pushed him away. Verse 4 goes on to say her next words, "'My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door,' And my heart yearned for him. So it seems that, again, she refused his voice at first as he started the advancement. But then as his hand was latching the door, she kind of had a change of heart. And now her heart's conflicted. And that kind of shallow excuse of maybe just tiredness or laziness or whatever, it kind of goes away. And she realizes, I miss my husband too. And I do want to be with him. And I just was, I guess, a little too tired in the moment there. And so now she begins to describe her heart yearning for him. She says, I arose, verse 5, to open for my beloved. So notice now there's kind of a, a change of heart. She has a change of mind and goes to open the door. She's now ready to receive him in. And my hands dripped with myrrh and my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. Many times these were scented fragrances. They would put upon the bed chambers, again, just to kind of create a romantic atmosphere. And so now she leaps up, runs to the door, and she opens the door, verse 6, for her beloved, verse 6, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. So he basically took the refusal, decided okay, and he departs now, and she goes, but it's a little bit too late, and she realizes, oh my goodness, I've refused my husband. What did I do? I've probably angered him or hurt his feelings. She realizes there's some tension now, and she says, I opened the door, but it was too late. He's already turned, and he already walked away. He left because I refused his advancement. My heart leaped up when he spoke. She says, I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. So again, kind of the sense here that she's concerned now and the anxiety begins to brew. Oh no, is he angry with me? Is he upset with me? Verse seven, you can tell kind of this is poetic language. She's kind of, if you could use the term, beating herself up because she feels bad because she refused her husband's sexual advance. She says, the watchman who went about the city found me and they struck me and they wounded me. Now, I don't think that literally happened. Again, if this is a dream state or this is her just thinking through this, uh, in a sense, the idea here is she's envisioning herself being punished and no doubt she's just feeling bad. So she's kind of, we use the term beating oneself up as she describes this in poetic language that as she's out looking around for her husband to reconcile things, she feels like she's being wounded. The keepers of the walls, they took my veil from me 
I charge you, she says, verse 8, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, she says, tell him I am lovesick. So again, complete change of heart now. Now she's longing for him. She's wishing that she did not refuse his romantic advancement at this point. And she says, if you find him, tell him I am so sorry and I want to be with him as much as he wanted to be with me, and I'm regretful that I denied his advance towards me romantically and sexually. Verse 9, the daughters of Jerusalem then chime in, and they say, what is your beloved? More than another beloved, O fairest among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved so that you so charge us? So in a sense, what they're saying is, is, it seems that you're struggling with ungratefulness, and it seems the question they're now posing here to her, almost kind of reproving her because of what they saw somewhat of an ingratitude that she showed towards her husband in this situation. They say, you know, what is it about your beloved that's so special about him that you're charging us to help you to go run around the city to go find him because you're so lovesick and longing for him now? In other words, you're saying, tell us, in a sense, this is their question, what makes him so special? What is it that makes him so special? Well, she answers that in verse 10 now. And now notice, in the same way he verbally praised her, notice now, ladies, now she's doing the same thing. Now she begins to speak about her husband. And I want you to notice part of what she's doing here is what she is doing is she is envisioning her husband through her mind and through her words in a romantic way which no doubt contributed and helped her to be able to begin to have desire romantically and to be aroused for her husband again. So she begins now to think through and to ponder her husband, even his physical attributes as well as his character, as a way of basically stirring her own interest romantically towards her husband. And I think this is a very valuable thing. I think sometimes that an error can be made when we just begin to mechanically relate to one another like business partners as husbands and wives. And so she wisely realizes, let me think about my husband. Let me use my mind to envision my husband romantically. And this stirs her to want to be with him, and it actually arouses her to be interested in intimacy with her own husband. Verse 10, they say, what is it so special about your husband? She says, verse 10, my beloved is white. The term there literally in the Hebrew is radiant. The idea is he's stunning and he's ruddy. The word ruddy implies the idea of he's rugged or he's manly. So she says, my beloved, she says, he is stunning and he is manly. He's just very masculine and I find that incredibly attractive, she's saying. She calls him chief among 10,000. Again, she sees him as a, a chief and a, a, a leader. I have that circle in my Bible there because that's actually one of the nicknames my wife gave me. So I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling pretty, pretty studly when I, when I think about that. And I don't even know if she did that purposely, but for many, many years, that's one of the primary nicknames she calls me, chief. I like it. Makes me feel manly. Chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. The idea is rare. She's saying, my husband is a rare man. I've got a rare find in who my husband is. Again, she's recalibrating her appreciation for her own husband. 
His locks are wavy. So in other words, she's describing his nice locks of hair. She likes to run her fingers through her husband's hair and black as a raven. So she likes to run her fingers through his wavy black raven hair. His eyes are like doves. And again, we've noted how doves are not only peaceful, harmonious creatures, but doves are also known to mate for life. So again, it speaks of loyalty. And she says, this is something else I love about my husband. I look into his eyes and I see a loyal man. I see a man who's committed to me and devoted to me. And, and, and it made her feel very, in a sense, attracted to her husband because she, she loved that she could look into his eyes and see a loyally devoted husband that only wanted her and that was something that pleased her and blessed her by the rivers of waters washed with milk and fitly set his cheeks verse 13 are like a bed of spices banks of scented herbs his lips are lilies dripping with myrrh so she's envisioning his lips and the wonderful kisses she enjoys kissing him verse 14 his hands are rods of gold set with barrel. So she's picturing his firm, strong, masculine hands. She is attracted to that as strong hands in his masculinity. Verse 14, she gets a little more sensual. And his body is carved ivory, inlaid with sapphires. So there the picture, again, his body like carved ivory, she's saying he's got a strong sculpted physique. Now, guys, we may need to keep working on that throughout marriage to keep that true, but she's saying his physique, he's sculpted. I just, I love to be able to look at his sculpted, strong physique as a man. His legs, she says, are pillars of marble, strong legs, just a strong stature, set on bases of fine gold, and his countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. Again, the cedars were big, strong trees, the cedar forests. His mouth is most sweet. And again, whether that's his kisses or just the fact that he spoke in very sweet terms, and she found that very appealing. Again, we mentioned last time in our study, I believe it was, that men typically are aroused visually and women more commonly tend to be aroused verbally by what men say and how men speak to them. And look, I can prove to that because if you ever notice every once in a while, you will see a very attractive woman with a man and you're thinking, how in the world did he pull that off? And I tell you how he pulled it off, he knows how to treat a lady. And because he knows how to treat a lady, that's how he got that attractive woman. Look, I, to me, that made total sense. I just, when you realize you only got so much to bring to, to the table, I just, I better learn how to treat a lady. And, and so I tried to the best of my ability to treat my wife from day one like a princess and continue to do that because, again, that's typically what stimulates a woman is sweet talk and, and that kind of treatment. When you treat a woman with sweetness and tenderness and you're a sweet man, that's very, very appealing and often very, very arousing. You know, it's often been said before that typically any wise husband understands that romantic love begins many times right around the kitchen sink, washing some dishes, saying some sweet things, you know, kindly saying things all day long to gradually build. And she says, his mouth, she says, I, I appreciate, he's so sweet, she says. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, she calls him. And this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Notice, she calls him her beloved and my friend. 
She says, he is both my lover and he's my best friend. And, and let me tell you, gentlemen, that is, that is part of what your, life want, your wife wants. Does she want a lover? Yes. But she also wants a best friend. And, and this is very important to a woman. And she says, he is so sweet and he is not only my lover, but she says, he is also my wonderful friend. And again, I look at verse 16 and I think to myself again there, what a very fitting description of our spiritual groom, the Lord Jesus. Does not that picture Jesus very truly as our groom, that Jesus is exactly the same as what she's in a sense describing in verse 16? Jesus is lovely and is Jesus not a wonderful friend? Is he not the best friend that you have ever experienced in your life? That Jesus, verse 16, is altogether lovely. And Jesus is our friend, that friend that sticks closer than a brother to us. So she now, you know, envisioning, thinking about her husband. And as she's doing this, her own desires and arousal towards her husband is beginning to stir. Verse six, or 1 of chapter 6, where has your beloved gone, they say, the daughters of Jerusalem? O fairest among the women, where has your beloved turned aside that we may seek him with you? So, okay, he sounds like a great guy. We'll help you find him. Let's, let's see what we can do. You're, you're lovesick. You're longing for him. Sounds like a good man. Let, let's help you find him. She answers, verse 2, my beloved has gone to his garden. Now, in prior sections, we saw the garden was a reference to the you know, sexual intimacy between the husband and the wife. Here it seems that a literal garden is being referred to that, again, because she has not found him yet. So this doesn't seem to be describing intimacy at this point, but that he has gone to a literal garden to the beds of the spices, verse two, to feed his flock in the gardens and to gather his lilies. And I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And he feeds his flock among the lilies. So again, what's she doing? She says, I don't know where he's at. He's off to work again. Again, she's trying to track him down now. She wants to make amends for what happened the night before. So he's either off tending to his affairs and business. He's off to work. He's doing what he would typically be doing. Twice it's mentioned, verse 2 and 3, he's feeding his flock. He's tending. And she kind of in a worried, if you would, attitude is pursuing him. And she knows where to go find him. She says, he's got to be out feeding his flock. I've got to track him down. And it seems she's looking for him, searching for him. And it seems between verse three and four, she finds him out feeding his flocks, reconnects. And now in a worrisome concern, she's wondering, is he going to reject me? Is he angry at me? Is he going to be resentful because I refused his advancement for romantic intimacy the night before? Is he upset with me? And notice, we see none of that, verse 4. Solomon responds here, verse 4, with no anger. He's not nursing resentment because he was refused in regards to his sexual advance the night before. He just beautifully reassures her with love. Look what he says, verse 4, to her. Neither Solomon's words, now to her. She's worried. She's insecure. He says, oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, one of the very beautiful cities in ancient Israel known in that day. Lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Again, these were all things that were beautiful sights to see. And so when he sees her, he just reassures her, I'm not angry with you. I don't have resentment in my heart towards you. I'm not bitter and taking it personal because you refused me romantically. He says, you're beautiful. I'm so glad to see you. 
Verse 5, he says to her, turn your eyes away from me, for they overcome me. In other words, when you look at me, I lose control, he says. Just one glance of your eyes. Again, the power of a look of his wife. Just She was able to look at him with her eyes. And, and he says, just one look of your eyes. And man, you do me in. <laughs> he says, you, just, you overwhelm me. Just one glance of looking into your eyes. And then verse 5, you notice he starts to reiterate much of what he said to her back in chapter 4 on their wedding night. Again, he goes back to these same compliments. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Going down from Gilead, referring to the long, black, wavy hair that she possessed. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. Again, she had nice, white, clean teeth, and every one of them bore twins, and none was barren, so she had symmetrical teeth. By the grace of God, she had all of her teeth. He was very happy about these things, had this beautiful smile he's complimenting her about. Verse 7, like... A piece of pomegranate, your temples are behind your veil. So notice, again, using very similar, if not exactly, the same praise and compliments he gave to her when he was going from, remember, north to south, praising her on their wedding night of her beauty. And I want you to notice something. What is Solomon doing here? They progressed in marriage, and he is ensuring his wife, you are just as beautiful as you were on our wedding night. I find you just as attractive now. You are just as beautiful. You are just as lovely. And again, we don't know how far the marriage has progressed, but this is a wise man as he's assuring his wife, listen, whether it's been one year, two years, five years, 10 years, 30 years, he says, I find you just as beautiful as the night of our honeymoon. In fact, you are just as lovely, he says, as our wedding night and I have no resentment. Again, he welcomes her with complete graciousness as he reconnects with her. In fact, verse 8, he then go on to say poetically, there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, he says, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and they called her blessed. The idea she stood out among the daughters of Israel, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Now, what's, what's being described here, again, Solomon's using, again, Hebrew poetry. So in using Hebrew poetry, this was a common way poetry was used where you had a progression of numbers. Notice 60, verse 8, 80, and then without number. 60, 80, without number, increasing numbers. And what that was being descriptive of there is building to something greater and greater. So this is not Solomon at this point, and I think it's important to point this out, because we know ultimately Solomon does begin to err off track, and he really kind of goes off the rails in regards to his whole romantic and marriage life of ultimately having 700 wives and 300 concubines, which was a foolish thing and really led to Solomon's demise. But again, this is early, and this is the Bible giving us in a pure form, a description, I believe, of his first love. When he did things right, before he got ruinous and having his passions run out of control. So don't read this. I don't take it as Solomon saying at this point he also already has 60 queens 80 concubines and lots of virgins all around with number. In other words, this is not Solomon saying he's already building his harem. What Solomon is describing here in a poetic way is he's using ascending language to get to the greatest thing, which was a Hebrew poetry practice, 
is he saying, even among all the queens, among all the concubines, among all the virgins in Israel, he says, my dove, verse 9, he says, you're the only one for me. Among all those ladies out there, the queens, the virgins, the most beautiful ladies in the land, he says, you are the only woman for me. You're the only one I want. You're perfect in comparison to all the rest of them. And what is this? This is a wise husband saying, you're better than all the ladies out there. You're the absolute perfect one for me. And here's this husband reassuring his wife to try and diminish any insecurities, any struggles within her, which again can be a common thing. Perhaps she's feeling a little bit insecure as life progresses, as we age, as our bodies change, and we worry about physical appearance and all these things. This is a wise husband saying to his wife, I think you are just as beautiful as the day we went on our honeymoon. And I want you to know, no matter how many women are out there, I don't want any other one of them. I, you are the perfect one and the only one for me. And you fulfill all my dreams. And you meet all my desires. He said, in fact, you excel all the other women. You rise above them all. Again, this is just a wise, wise husband praising his wife, making her feel very special making her feel that she is exclusively superior to all the other women out there. And I'll tell you guys, a wise man does such and makes his wife feel incredibly secure by speaking in such ways to her. I love that. You are the only one for me. He wanted her to know that. And I think your wives need to know that. You should encourage that and facilitate that in how you treat them and speak to them. Verse 10, he says, Who is she who looks forth as the morning... Fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners. Now, again, the, the beautiful moon, the clear, bright sun, an awesome army coming with its banners and flags. The picture here is these were all things that were a powerful sight to behold. And so, again, this is what he's saying. Boy, honey, you are a sight to behold. Just looking upon you is incredible. Now, the Shulamite responds, verse 11, saying, I went down to the Garden of Nuts to see the verdure of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. So she wanted to see if things were in blossom down in the garden. Again, this is poetic. We'll see. Before I was even aware, my soul made me as the chariots of my noble people. Now, what she now does, again, is she's struggling and she wants to see if despite what's happened between them and her refusing his advancement romantically, if their love is still blossomed and able to be in full bloom as it always was. And so she's describing that in some ways poetic language. And she says, as I was doing such, she says, my soul became very reassured in my heart like the chariots of noble or special people. And he made her feel very secure. He made her feel very special. And you'll see there was not a hiccup in the romantic moment where they were able to then re-engage back into the expression of loving intimacy with one another because, I want to say this, because Solomon wisely, as a man, rather than personalizing the rejection of his romantic advancement and her refusal of such that evening, rather than him being bitter and resentful and pouting over such, he lovingly and graciously welcomed her back, did not make her feel bad and beat her up about the rejection the night before, 
and instead just reassured her of his merciful love towards her and that he loved her nonetheless and that he wanted to be with her. In fact, look at verse 13. He says to the beloved, now he's speaking, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. What is he saying? Just, just come back. I don't want to push you away. He says, I, I want to receive you back. Return to me. Be with me once again. Now, can I just say, as we look at that, again, it's a description of what happened between them as a husband and a wife. Is that not a very fitting description, again, of what happens at times between us and Jesus? Sometimes we make the mistake of rejecting the Lord, as we talked about a little bit ago, in spiritual indifference. And then, like the Shulamite wife, we regret our failure. And we regret our failure, and, but the wonderful thing is this. If in repentance, just like she did, we go seek after the Lord, he always invites us to do what? Return. To return. And he says, look, if, if you're genuinely sorrowful that you refused me and you denied me and now you're seeking me out, just return. Nothing's changed in our relationship, Jesus would say. I'm not angry at you. I don't love you any less. I love you just as much as the day that you first became in relationship with me. And Jesus always welcomes us back. He always invites us to return to him, even after our own failures and time of refusal of our Lord as well. So he's saying to her, return, return. She then responsibly says, verse 13, what would you see in the Shulamite. So she says, again, keep in mind here, she, she wants to rekindle the romance. She's now, in a sense, as she's thought over her husband and her heart's lovesick for him, she wants to now advance. And in a sense, you're going to see she's initiating the intimacy at this point. She says, what would you see? What would you like to see? As it were, the dance of the two camps, the Mahanim. Now, commentators dispute her what she's referring to poetically when she says the dance of the two camps. One of two things, uh, Mahanim was a place where angels were seen by Jacob. So in a sense, she could say, do you want to see the dance of an angel? Or the dance of two camps also was a description of how when they would dance and celebrate, there were two camps. In a sense, the men would stand on one side, the women would stand on the other side. And as they would dance, they would be able to look at one another and visually watch one another. To me, I think it is probably much more likely that she's saying, as he says, return, she says, uh, do you want to see the dance? Would you like me to dance for you? And, and it seems that she begins to, in some ways now, begin to perform this very sensual dance romantically for her husband to arouse him and to draw him back in now into physical intimacy, understanding this is something that would greatly please my husband. Now, the reason why I think that's very evident that that is what she's doing here, beginning to dance for him, is because the very next statements coming out of his mouth are very sensual. And he's obviously very aroused by the dance, sensually, his wife is performing for him, and he's watching her standing across from her. Verse 1 of chapter 7, How beautiful are your feet, in your sandals, O prince's daughter. So notice what he's going to do this time. Last time he went from north to south. Remember, gentlemen? This time he's going to go from south to north. And he's just going to, just going to take the opposite direction. And he starts with noticing her feet first. Why? Because what's she doing? She's dancing. And she's not square dancing. She's dancing. 
She's dancing in a very sensual way for her husband's pleasure, romantically. She's being playful with her husband. Again, very beautiful to see, again, the, the progression of marital love. It doesn't get worse, it gets better because you understand how to lovingly please one another and care for one another. You become more comfortable. So she's doing the two-camp dance for him now, and he's looking at her feet. Oh, your feet. And look what he goes on to say. He starts to go north. The curves of your thighs are like jewels. So now he's beginning to enjoy looking at her thighs. Now, I won't tell you, but you can see me afterwards if you're married, what the Hebrew of the word curves actually is implying there, but we're mixed company. I'll tell you afterwards if you're married. Come see me. The work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel, verse 2, he says, is like a rounded goblet. It lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat. Now, might want to be careful with that one, guys. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. But again, here's the picture. The waist, like a heap of wheat, when they had a heap of wheat, guess what they would do? They would bind it in the middle, and they would cinch it, and now what do you got? An hourglass. He's going, oh, your figure, babe. Wow. Your figure is beautiful. Again, she's, in a sense, dancing in front of him. He's enjoying looking at his wife. He's being aroused by his wife. Verse 3, your two breasts are like two fawns twins of a gazelle. We saw him describe in that way last time. Your neck is like an ivory tower, beautifully sculpted, beautiful posture. Your eyes like the pools of Heshbon. Again, pools typically were reflective. So again, it was the idea of beautiful eyes or potentially blue eyes, maybe even like pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon which looks toward Damascus. Now, again, not speaking of a large nose, the Tower of Lebanon was perfectly sculpted. So he's saying, you got a perfect nose. Again, he's, again, he's, he's emphasizing her beauty in his own poetic, uh, poetic, romantic description here. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. Now, she's not a punk rocker. The purple is the color of what? Royalty. So again, what's he just saying? He's saying, your hair, you look like a royal princess. As she's dancing in front of him, arousing him, he says, man, you're so beautiful, your beautiful hair. And he said, a king is held captive by your tresses. Now take notice. She's holding him captive. He is captivated by his wife's beauty at this point. I mean, the idea is he's mesmerized. This guy is completely mesmerized looking at his wife. Verse 6 how fair and how pleasant you are, my love, with your delights. Thus, the stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree, and I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine. So Nancy says, look, I'm, I'm done watching the show. I, I'm now, I want to engage now. And he's implying that he wants to be able to embrace her physically. The fragrance of your breath like apples in the roof of your mouth like the best wine. The wine goes down smoothly, she says, my beloved, moving gently the lips of the sleepers. I am my beloved, she says, and she, in a sense of celebration, she says, and his desire is towards me. And again, now she's celebrating. Now she's celebrating the fact that he is sensually aroused and wants to be with her before, in her error, 
She was refusing his advances. Now she's celebrating his advances. Now she's the one saying, I am my beloved's. And she says, and, and I like the fact that he is longing for me and that his desire is for me. She's celebrating now his arousal towards her. She's become very secure in such. Now, when you look at chapter 7, verse 10 there, I think, again, there's a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus in a spiritual sense, that we are his, I am my beloved's, and his desire is towards me. Again, Jesus is, in a sense, despite my flaws, despite your failures, despite our known imperfections, right? Jesus looks upon us and how wonderful that though we know we have many flaws, failures, and shortcomings, Jesus remains merciful and gracious and he overlooks all my flaws, he overlooks all my failures, and he desires me. That blows my mind. A lot of times we just think Jesus tolerates us, don't we? Thank goodness he tolerates me. <laughs> Thank goodness Jesus tolerates me. Jesus desires you. Jesus' love towards you is so strong, he overlooks our flaws and failures and desires us in a very loving and an intimate way. What a wonderful security we have in the Lord. Now, verse 11, she begins, watch this, she begins now initiating. So again, take notice, and let me say here, ladies, take notice that she now is the one that begins initiating, and if you would, becomes the aggressor in regards to romantic and intimate relationship with her husband. And this is how you can tell. Comfortability has developed and maturity is happening in the relationship as the marriage progresses because it's not always the man being the initiator in regards to sexual intimacy. Now she's initiating. She's actually the aggressor. And what she says in verse 11, in a sense, is she is the one who is inviting them, if you would, the picture here is kind of to do a little getaway. And you can tell because look what she says, verse 11. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in full bloom. Watch your language, verse 12. And there I will give you my love. The mandrakes, these were known in ancient culture. Mandrakes were believed to be an, a flower that was an aphrodisiac to create arousal. The mandrakes give off their fragrance, and at our gates are pleasant fruits, all manner new and old. So now she's talking about romantic creativity, old patterns of romance, and some new creative ways to be romantic and erotic as a husband and wife, which I have laid up for you, she says, my beloved. So please take notice here. Wise woman to recognize one of the most wonderful things you can do on occasion as a married woman and as your marriage progresses is to recognize that at times it will bring great pleasure to your husband if you're the one who's initiating sexually. If you're the one who is, in a sense, being the aggressor in regards to romantic intimacy, she says here, let's get away. Let's go up. And she kind of is kind of almost describing a romantic getaway here. Let's go off to the fields off to the vineyards, and she says, as we'll get away on this romantic time away, and there, she says, the mandrakes will be laid out, the fruits and so forth. So she says, and I want to give you my love on this romantic getaway. I want to go away, and I want to be together with you. I want to stir up again our romantic intimacy. And again, no doubt this was something as a great expression of love and was 
a part of their progression in marital relationship, learning how to care one for another. Now, again, I like how she says there, I will give you my love, because again, I think as we think of, in a sense, spiritually about our relationship with the Lord, that should be our attitude towards Jesus. Does not Jesus give us a ton of love? I mean, he loves on us constantly, unconditionally, and how wonderful. The Bible tells us we should love the Lord our God with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And I think it's a wonderful thing when we have the heart attitude spiritually towards our beloved, towards our groom, Jesus, where we would say to Jesus, Jesus, I want to just give you my love. I want to give you my love in every way. And I'm willing to set aside, just like this Shulamite wife, I'm willing to set aside my inhibitions and my insecurities, and I just want to give you the full passion of my love. And I think that blesses our Lord's heart when at times we set aside our pride and our human ambitions, and we give him the fullness of our love, even as she here is trying to give the fullness of her love romantically to her own husband. Chapter 8 says, Oh, that you were like my brother, she now says, who nursed at my mother's breasts. Now, I'm going to explain this. You don't think it's weird what she's saying here. If, you sh- if I should find you outside, I would kiss you and would not be despised. The idea is I wouldn't be in a sense, looked upon in a despised manner as doing something wrong, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She who used to instruct me, I would cause you to drink of spiced wine of the juice of my pomegranate. Now, what she's describing here basically in, in verse 1 and 2 there, in the ancient culture, public displays of romantic affection between a husband and a wife was frowned upon. Now, expressions of affection and love on a familial level between parents and children or brothers and sisters, that was acceptable in open public because that was deemed pure love and that was something that was appropriate. So what she's saying when she says here to her husband after she's again just re-engaged in intimacy with him and her heart has been awakened again in attraction towards her husband is she's saying, man, I wish you were my brother because then I could show you my affection in public and I could kiss you and embrace you and show you my affection towards you, she says, and it wouldn't be despised. So what she's describing in verse one and two is really that she would long to be affectionate with her husband. She would long to express physical affection towards him publicly, but she realized it's not really culturally appropriate, but she says, man, I am longing for you and I wish that I could express my affections towards you. Verse three, you can tell she is again kind of envisioning this because she says his left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. Again, we've seen this phrase before describing the physical embrace of intimacy. She's longing for his touch. She's longing for his embrace. It makes her feel secure. It's enjoyable to her. And again, as she speaks of this term again of physical intimacy, the the, the hands, the embracing of her body. She then says, verse four, this is the third time now, this refrain, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. And we've talked about this is her counsel as a woman regarding romantic love and particularly uh, of sexual expression between a husband and a wife. She says to the other young ladies of the land, listen, don't you make the mistake of awakening that prematurely. You save it for your marriage. Use restraint. Don't stir up something before it's time to stir it up outside of the design of God. 
It is wonderful, passionate, sensual, and fulfilling, and it is a gift to bond a husband and a wife and to be able to lovingly care for and gratify one another and to be bonded together. But she says, but it does not belong outside of marriage. And she says, so don't you awaken that prematurely until the time pleases when you are married in a covenant commitment with a spouse. Verse 5, it seems again here as they've gone on this little getaway that they end up going back, it seems, to the area maybe of her hometown. It kind of seems how this closes out this poetic love song. Who is this? So this is a relative, it seems, speaking now or someone in the community of her hometown. Who is this coming from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. So someone's seeing her coming. So they now see the, the, the Shulamite wife coming back with King Solomon. And it's almost as if they see her leaning upon her husband, leaning upon her beloved. Again, she's, she's starstruck. She's leaning back upon him. And this person is remembering perhaps they were there when there under the apple tree, her mother brought her forth, and they're thinking, I knew you when you were just a little country toddler, and I saw you born under the apple tree, and who's this? You're now a grown woman. You're now married to a king, and there you are leaning on the heart of your beloved, coming back to town. And again, they're kind of somewhat surprised to see her in this matured state and in great love with King Solomon. Now, I look at verse 5, and I love that phrase, leaning upon her beloved. Can I again just say quickly, spiritually, how beautiful that is a description of how we should be relating towards Jesus. We should be leaning upon our beloved. We should be living in relationship to Jesus where we are leaning upon the Lord for everything. That we should be relying upon him and leaning upon the Lord resting in him, relying upon him as we have a love relationship. Now, she then speaks once again, verse 6, saying now to her husband, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Again, a seal was a sign clearly of ownership. So she says, I belong to you and I want to belong to you. She says, seal upon your heart that I belong to you and set me as a seal upon your arm. I don't know, maybe that's an ancient version, tattoo my name on your arm. I don't know, maybe. For love, she says, is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. Again, death is something unstoppable. So what's she saying about their love? She says, our love is so strong like death, it's unstoppable. She says, our love is unstoppable. No one could stop the love that we share as a husband and a wife. Notice their, their, their depth of love is increasing and growing. The longer they're together, their intimacy gets better, it matures, and the strength of their love, she says, it's unstoppable. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. In a sense, they became very, in a sense, healthily protected of one another. There was a loving jealousy that was amongst them, caring for one another, wanting to protect their marriage. Its flames are like the flames of fire and the most vehement flame. Again, flames and fire picture that which is burning. And so she's describing the burning passion, that there's a fiery passion between them. Again, and are they newlyweds? Not anymore. 
but the fire's still burning. And any married couple should know that's God's heart. Not that the fire goes out. Oh, yeah, we're married. The fire should keep burning. The love should grow stronger. There should be more fire and more passion and more excitement and thrill in a healthy marriage till death do us part. And that's something that God wants to grow and to progress. And as we become more comfortable and more close, that's something that as we put more fuel upon the fire of our love, look what she says, verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. In other words, she's saying there is nothing that can drown out our love. Even the floods of ungodliness or the greatest floods cannot come in and stop and put an end to our love. That is a deep, deep expression of devotion between this husband and a wife. And again, certainly reminds us of the love that we should share between Jesus. And this is just a beautiful, strong expression of the deep dedication of love. She says, all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised if a man would give such for love. In other words, she's saying you can't buy love. That's the idea there. So one of the Beatles, right? I guess they got one thing right there. Can't buy me love. And again, we understand that, right? Love, true romantic love, solid good love between a husband and a wife. For those of us who are married, is that not a gift? That's a gift. You can't buy love. You can't force someone to fall in love with you. So if you've got someone who's fallen in love with you and there's a strength in your bond of love, that is a gift. That's a gift. You can't buy that. There are people with all the money in the world and they're miserable and lonely. And if you've got someone who strongly loves you, you're incredibly wealthy. It's the most valuable thing in the world to have that. And these two saw their love in that way. Verse 8, the Shulamite brothers chime in briefly. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. The idea is she hasn't flowered yet. She's still immature. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? The idea is to be married. Verse 9, if she is a wall, we will build upon her, a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. Now, what this is describing here, the brothers chime in. Maybe it's a reflection back to the Shulamite woman when she was younger, their younger sister, or maybe they have another little sister. But what this is, is a beautiful description poetically of these brothers seeing themselves as guardians over their little sister. And I like this. What a beautiful description. They say, we have a little sister, and we feel as guardians it's our job to protect her and make sure that she's prepared and she's ready for the day that she's spoken for. And they say, depending upon what her temperament is, we're going to relate to her accordingly to help protect and guide her until she finds the right man. They say, if our sister is a wall, the idea is if her temperament is she puts a wall up and she restricts men, and she kind of herself puts up a wall with her own temperament, then they say, then we're going to do what we can to support that and to build upon that, and we're going to reinforce and we're going to stand behind our sister. Hey, our sister is putting a wall up against you. Don't push against that wall, bro. Respect the boundaries. But then they say also, verse 9, if our sister has a tendency towards being like a door, in other words, that she's always inviting men in to her life, relationally, that are not good or healthy, then, we, then the brothers say, then we're going to respond differently. We will enclose her, and we're going to board her up. <laughs> they say, well, if she doesn't know how to have good judgment, if she's opening the door to unhealthy men, then as her guardians, we're going to step in and protect her purity. And we're going to do what we can to make sure we shield her 
if she's not using good judgment from any men who may have access that would not be good. Verse 10, she then says of herself, I am a wall and my breasts like towers. And then I became in his eyes, her beloved, as one who found peace. Again, the sense of security, finding harmony in the relationship. And is that not true of us in Jesus? We become in the eyes of our Lord as one in relationship with him who's found peace. As you enter into marriage with Jesus, that's how you and I finally find peace. It's the only way to find peace is in a relationship with him. Verse 11 and 12, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon, and he leased the vineyard to keepers, and everyone was to bring its fruit a thousand silver coins. So it seems that was the payment for working a field that belonged to Solomon or the king. My own vineyard, she says, is set before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who lend its fruit two hundred. Now, seems what she's depicting here is, again, kind of reflecting back, and maybe this was how they met, potentially, that she's recalling how they met, they're back in her hometown, and that Solomon, as the king, he would lease out his vineyards among the kingdom, and the vineyard keepers, they would have to bring for the fruit of the vineyard a thousand silver coins as profit, but they were permitted, as they worked one of Solomon's vineyards, to basically tend its fruit 200 and to keep a portion for themselves. And as she describes in verse 12, my own vineyard, perhaps what she's making allusion to here is her own life as a vineyard and saying, Solomon, there is a part of my vineyard, just like a part of the vineyard you leased to our family where you found me working and we fell in love with that arrangement. She's saying, Solomon, my vineyard now, a part of it belongs to my family, a small portion, but the greatest percentage of me, Solomon, is all yours. Solomon, you trump all my family members now. The greatest part of my life belongs to you. A small portion belongs to my family, but the greatest part of my life is your vineyard for you to be able to enjoy. Verse 13, it seems Solomon and her have been visiting in the hometown. Our song concludes, the beloved speaks, Solomon says, you who dwell in the gardens, perhaps she was walking around the gardens in the town there, the companions listen for your voice. So again, she was a friendly, talkative. She was the mayor of the town. Everybody liked her attention, and he was just delighting how she was such a, a special lady in the midst of the town. But then he says, longing and missing her, let me hear your voice. In other words, he's saying, all right, we spent some time now, he says, visiting, and, but he says, I miss you. I, I want to hear your voice now. You've given your attention to everyone else, all the companions, but he says, I want to hear your voice now. I wonder if sometimes Jesus says that to us. I'd like to hear your voice now. And look what she says in conclusion, verse 14. Make haste, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. So he, in a sense, says, sweetheart, I've enjoyed watching you visit everybody, but I, I miss you. I want your attention again. I want to hear your voice, and I'd like to spend time with you again. And she, in verse 14, again says to him, hey, you young stag, why don't you come visit, she says, the mountain of spices. Now, that was a little playful love language, the mountain of spices, that he no doubt heard publicly and that she said publicly. Everybody else maybe didn't catch, but as lovers... He knew what that meant. Hey, you young stag, you want to come to the Mountain of Spices? 
And Solomon went, vroom, vroom. We still got it. Still got it. What a beautiful thing to see this intensity and passion and love and intimacy that exists between this couple, even as their marriage progresses all the way along. And she, in essence, is saying to him, listen, she's saying, come on, honey. And she's inviting him, come, come. And look, can I say this in conclusion to this? Let me leave it off on this note, and I think it is an appropriate note. Even as she says to her husband, come. What does Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, tell us that we say as the bride of our groom, Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring me home. That's what she was saying to him. Come on, bring me home. Let's go be together again. And that's what we say to Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's stand together, let's pray. You